Right. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the second of my trilogy of talks on church family. So the first one was a few weeks ago on church family with an emphasis on singleness. And this one has an emphasis on marriage. And in a few weeks' time, about five weeks' time, uh, it has an emphasis on sexuality. I'm going to be looking at same-sex attraction and around that subject because it's something we've not really covered. So I've only got a very short time. So obviously, I'm only going to cover a tiny, <laughs> tiny aspect of marriage. Um, but I want to pick out on things that, that actually help us look to what it is to be a church family as well. So we're going to see what our culture tells us about marriage and the problems that's causing. Uh, why you married the wrong person. Um, whether you need one of these pieces of paper to love your spouse. Um, what does the Bible say about marriage? And what's the great secret of marriage? Yes. Uh, and then we're going to apply that to how to be a church family. And finally, end with a great vision of church and how it should be by asking the great eternal question, why bother? But first, we're going to start in the obvious place with Homer's Odyssey and the Island of the Sirens. It's coming from that island. Let's steer heedlessly towards it. Heedlessly it is. <laughs> the is cheesy, the sirens are easy. Boy, if they kiss as good as they lure. Wow. On the island, we'll search you up. Island of sirens. I've watched that clip so many times. <laughs> I love it. Um, uh, that's not the original story of the Odyssey, as you probably realise. Um, so the, the, the real myth is a myth, but it's got truth in it. Uh, the real story is that Odysseus has got to pass by the island of the sirens, and he's been warned about it. The sirens are these wonderful, beautiful creatures like mermaids or something, and they're... They sing wonderful songs and they lure sailors to their deaths on the rocks that are around the island. So Odysseus has been warned in advance that this is going to happen, but he needs to, he needs to go this way on his journey. So he tells his men to tie him to the mast of the ship. And he also tells them to melt wax and put it into their ears so that they can't hear the sound, the, this wonderful singing that lures them in. But it's important that he does hear it, so he's tight, going to be tied to the mast. So they get near to the island, and the, the wind dry, dies down, and it's perfectly calm, and these wonderful songs come across from the island. And Odysseus is desperate. He can hear what they're singing. He can see what they look like. And he's desperate to get near to them. He's straining at the ropes. Um, but he's told his, his crew that if they... If he commands them to untie him, they're to ignore him completely and tie him tighter. So that's what they do. They tie him even tighter to the mast. And because they can't hear, they can row and get past the island. And Odysseus becomes the first person to go past the island of the Sirens um, and live to tell the tale. We'll come back to that later. But what story does our culture tell us about marriage? Well, Chris Rock, uh, American comedian, a comedian uh, he says, do you want to be single and lonely? or married and bored. And that is the kind of somewhat cynical view that a lot of people have about marriage. They've got sort of an unreal and distorted 
view, uh, that most marriages are perhaps unhappy, you know, boring. Um, it also thinks that living together is a great way to figure out if uh, you found the right person, if this is the right person that you should marry, if you've got the right chemistry. Um, it seems to think the key to a satisfying marriage is to find that soulmate, that person who's going to really help me to be who I am, um, going to accept me as I am, release me to be myself, they're not going to shackle me in any way. It's all about my, you know, my fulfilment. Uh, men apparently particularly want somebody who's not going to change them at all. Um, and people talk about someone compatible, someone who's going to, they're going to have great natural sex all the time. It's, there's that sort of sexual gratification as being a, a major thing. So the culture says we should be looking for the ideal person. And they're really looking for a kind of designer spouse. So whereas in the past people might have looked to marriage for uh, some sense of love and support and security, now, and, and to God and the afterlife for meaning and hope and a moral compass and identity, now it seems that they're looking to romantic love for everything looking to one person to give them everything they need, which makes them a god. Uh, and so effectively, they're looking for redemption from a human being. And if you do that, that's idolatry. Only God can be in that position. So this, these kind of values are causing enormous problems because um, it's putting an impossible expectation on marriage, really, something that it just can't live up to, which then leads, in turn, to this kind of pessimism about marriage because it just doesn't um, do, do that. Uh, it puts so much pressure onto marriage, far more pressure than any kind of traditional understanding or than any biblical understanding. And of course that leads to marriage breakdown. And as we know, the divorce rate is about half now, one in two. It treats marriage as an arrangement that can be just dissolved on a whim. Um, cohabiting in the 60s was negligible, but today over half of women in their 20s to 40s will at one time cohabit. The trouble with cohabiting is that you're constantly marketing yourself to the other person because you don't know if they might just walk out at any point. Now, if you take those values, those cultural values, those looking for that designer spouse, and then you say, oh, well, I'm a Christian, so also this designer spouse has got to give me everything I need and also be a Christian, where does that leave you? How are you going to find somebody like that? Um, Stanley Hauervas, of, uh, professor of eth ethics at Duke University, says this. Destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primary institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage, it fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means we're not the same people after we've entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom we find ourselves married. We tend to fall in love with our idea of the person, don't we? What we think they're like. And they turn out to be perhaps different. Marriage is difficult. We're both sinners coming together. No two people are compatible in the Christian view. 
And of course, the sexes are also mysterious to each other, um, to whatever degree. And so there's this clashing and this sparking. But that's actually part of the point of a Christian marriage. Uh, this is from Sarah Lipton, a, prof a professor of history, uh, talking about how perhaps uh, it's not marriage isn't suited to men because you know they want to be going out and um, sexual conquest, conquest and all that kind of thing going on. Um, she argues that marriage was traditionally a place where males became truly masculine. For most of Western history, the primary and most valued characteristic of manhood was self-mastery. A man who indulged in excessive eating, drinking, sleeping or sex, who failed to rule himself, was considered unfit to rule his household, much less a government. But what are the facts? Well, the facts about marriage, and these are not with a Christian bias, these are just facts from, um, from the secular world, is that marriage is the best kind of partnership, that married people have far higher physical and mental health and wealth accrual, that children with two married parents have two to three times more positive outcomes, that those who cohabit before marriage are more likely to divorce. The earlier sex is introduced, the more likely the relationship will break up. And also, if they stay together, two out of three marriages that say that they're unhappy will be happy in five years if they stay together. And of those who have been married over 40 years, 62% of them are very happy. Not just happy, that would be even more. 62% very happy. Marriage is a good thing. I've asked John Cleese to uh, read to us now, uh, to get a different perspective, um, on his reading from Screwtape Letters, which is by C.S. Lewis, for those who aren't familiar with it. Screwtape is a senior devil writing letters to a junior devil to tell him how to do his job. And everything's back to front, reverse. So when he talks about our father, he's talking about the devil. And when he talks about the enemy, he's talking about God. So have a listen to this. Letter 18. My dear Wormwood, even under Slubgob, you must have learned at college the routine technique of sexual temptation, and since for us spirits this whole subject is one of considerable tedium, though necessary as part of our training, I will pass it over. But on the larger issues involved, I think you have a good deal to learn. The enemy's demand on humans takes the form of a dilemma, either complete abstinence or unmitigated monogamy. Ever since our fathers' first great victory, we have rendered the former very difficult to them. The latter, for the last few centuries, we have been closing up as a way of escape. We have done this through the poets and novelists, by persuading the humans that a curious and usually short-lived experience, which they call being in love, is the only respectable ground for marriage, that marriage can and ought to render this excitement permanent, and that a marriage which does not do so is no longer binding. This idea is our parody of an idea that came from the enemy. The whole philosophy of hell rests on recognition of the axiom that one thing is not another thing, especially that oneself is not another self. My good is my good, and your good is yours. What one gains, another loses. Even an Inanimate object is what it is by excluding all other objects from the space it occupies. If it expands, it does so by thrusting other objects aside or by absorbing them. A self does the same. With beasts, the absorption takes the form of eating. For us, it means the sucking of will and freedom out of a weaker self 
into a stronger. To be means to be in competition. Now, the enemy's philosophy is nothing more nor less than one continued attempt to evade this very obvious truth. He aims at a contradiction. Things are to be many, yet somehow also one. The good of oneself is to be the good of another? This impossibility he calls <laughs> love. And this same monotonous panacea can be detected under all he does or even all he is or claims to be. Thus, he is not content even himself to be a sheer arithmetical unity. He claims to be three as well as one in order that this nonsense about love may find a foothold in his own nature. At the other end of the scale, he introduces into matter that obscene invention, the organism, in which the parts are perverted from their natural destiny of competition and made to cooperate. <laughs> uh, yes, his, his real motive for fixing on sex as the method of reproduction among humans is only too apparent from the use he has made of it. Sex might have been, from our point of view, quite innocent. It might have been merely one more mode in which a stronger self preyed upon a weaker, as it is indeed among the spiders, where the bride concludes her nuptials by eating her groom. But in the humans, the enemy has gratuitously associated affection between the parties with sexual desire. He has also made the offspring dependent on the parents and given the parents an impulse to support it, thus producing the family, which is like the organism, only worse. For the members are more distinct, yet also united in a more conscious and responsible way. The whole thing, in fact, turns out to be simply one more device for dragging in love. Well, what story does the Bible tell us? Well, marriage is a story that is woven into the whole of history. So it starts in Genesis 1, it goes all through the law and the wisdom literature, um, the prophets, and all the way, of course, to Jesus and his church, and culminating in a great wedding feast at the end of time. Um, the Bible sees marriage as a framework for a lifelong devotion between a man and a woman, the place that it's appropriate for people to have sex, and the place that provides that long-term stable relationship for children as well. And it's about subordinating individual interests and impulses in favor of the marriage. So as I said in the first talk, marriage is not a goal of Christian life. Um, but if marriage was done well, it could astonish the world. So four points about marriage. Um, why do you need one of these pieces of paper, a marriage certificate? Screwtape there talked about love not being about that thrill, you know, when you first hold hands, that, that you know, rush of feelings and emotion that comes up. Uh, that's got more to do with ego, actually. Oh, somebody that I really like really likes me as well, and <laughs> it sort of boosts your ego. And that, you know, that sort of thing doesn't last. The thing is, marriage will bring out the worst in you. Marriage will help you to see how you really are. And so that's why it's important that it's difficult to get out of. That's why you need one of these contracts. And that's why you make these vows horizontally in front of friends and family and vertically before God as well. But, and this is an important point, Christian marriage isn't just a contract. In Malachi, 
it talks about the wife of your marriage covenant. In Proverbs, uh, talking about a wayward woman, it talks about the woman who's left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. So in the Bible, marriage is a covenant, not a contract. And what's the difference? Make note of this because it's one of the questions in small groups this week. A contract is an agreement between two parties that when one of you doesn't keep up their end of the bargain, the contract can just be dissolved and there'll be clauses that tell you what to do in that circumstance. With a covenant, if one of the people doesn't always keep up their end of the bargain, does some things wrong, whatever, it carries on. It doesn't just stop. And this, of course, is a picture that God uses when he's talking about his people. He talks, says to Jerusalem, and he says, I gave you my solemn oath and entered into covenant with you, says the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. And time and again, of course, God's people let him down. They go off on a different path. And he says he's going to remain faithful, and he remains faithful to them. And so Christian marriage is this amazing merger of love and law working together. Uh, it's much more binding, much more personal, much stronger. Um, and you're committing the whole of your life to be loving, tender, faithful, serving, regardless of how you feel. Um, and it's about that delight that you increasingly feel as you serve somebody else. So you might think of it more like if you have a child and you keep loving and loving that child and they may not give much back or there might be times when you don't like them very much. There might be times when they really hurt you. But you've got more of a covenant relationship. It's, more, it's sort of an implicit covenant in that relationship that you're not going to walk away, that... When, you, when it no longer suits your lifestyle, you don't just leave. Of course, sometimes people do, but it's not, it's not how it's supposed to be. Um, we're going to watch, uh, have a listen to a song now.
played that to Katrina nearly 25 years ago and, uh, and then asked her to marry me. <laughs> Robert Smith, the lead singer there, he wrote that for his wife-to-be, Mary. He understood something really important, and I, I understood it at the time as well, that he knew what feelings she produced in him. He knew how he felt about her. But that is not what the marriage is about. Um, he said... I will always love you. So the marriage vows are not a sort of some kind of declaration of present love or worse, feelings. They're a binding promise of future agape, serving love. And, you know, he understood that. He's, he's been married to his wife for 30 years now, and that's pretty unusual um, in his kind of industry. So the point is that this covenant like Odysseus, keeps you tied to the mast. It keeps you there when difficulties come, when the temptation comes, when something that seems more appealing in the moment comes, and you know you might not have control of it. So Odysseus decided in advance to take the action he could to make sure he did the right thing when temptation came, or when some other thing came that looked as though it was more interesting, more exciting. And that's what we do when we make those vows before God we say to each other, I will stay with you. And then, once we've said that to each other, we can then be free to be ourselves. We don't have to keep marketing ourselves to each other. We're not afraid if we're, you know, we're afraid that one of us is going to walk away if something's not quite right. It doesn't mean you let yourself go, but it's, you know, because um, you, you're now, whatever you do, you do you're doing out of love uh, and care for the person, um, not out of, you know, wondering, worrying they're going to go. And so you can get into this virtuous cycle where a problem comes up, something you didn't know about this person that you suddenly find yourself married to, but you can address that problem and you can offer forgiveness, you can repent, you can receive forgiveness and you can um, come back together and embrace again. And you do that again and again and again and you get tighter and tighter um, bonded to each other and you can admire the other person for what they've been through for you as well. So that's the first point, covenant, not just contract and certainly not just living together. The second point is that Christian marriage is about difference. Uh, Genesis 1, God says he created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. And in Genesis 2, it says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So Jesus reaffirmed that marriage is between a man and a woman. He, he overturned a lot of things. He didn't overturn this. Um, because somehow he created us male and female to in some way reflect his image. The difference in biblical marriage in some way means something important to God. Men and women are so different. It's that classic book, isn't there? Men are from, is it men are from Mars, women are from Venus? Yeah. It's because of and not in spite of the tensions between the sexes that marriage works. That's an important part of it. Because masculinity and femininity, wherever you, you know, however masculine or feminine you are, there, there is, you know, real difference. And each of them has their own vices and each of them has their own strengths. And so there's a, there's a clashing, and, but there's also a meshing. And it's those two things going on. And that leads to growth for both parties because you're, you know, you're sort of knocking the, the, sharp, the rough edges off of each other. But it's important to say that male and female are both equal before God. There's equality of value 
And that's something that Jesus really emphasised. In fact, he's really there all along. Uh, Neil is just going to come and read to us now from Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 21 to 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Yeah, so that's the third point. That's how God tells us to live um, and to be married as Christians. So he talks about these divinely ordained roles of headship and of submission. And taking on those roles is a gift that you give one to the other. Um, but you also give it to God, because that, you know, in a sense, that's the main reason you're doing it, the main reason you're listening to what he has to say, um, to go by the pattern that he's set down. So there are these gender roles that he talks about. Um, and those lead, if they're working as they should, to a deeper understanding of ourselves. And they can help us to overcome those sort of sins of dominance, but also of overdependence. Um, of course, Jesus was actually raising the value of women um, quite counterculturally uh, in the time as well, raising them to be people to be loved, not to be property. Um, it's also practical. When you've got two people at times, somebody just has to make a decision, and um, that role is there for the husband. But if you notice, right at the very beginning of that, it says, submit yourselves one to another. He's not even talking about marriage there. He hasn't got to the marriage bit. So... Husbands are to submit, wives are to submit, we're all to submit to each other. So this is a wider thing. Of course, that clashes quite deeply with prevailing culture. Um, it's probably quite strange that Katrina and I went with the traditional birds. I don't know what you did in your vows. But we do find it very hard, don't we, as a culture, to live like this. And... Of course, even with the best intentions, sometimes a marriage ends up in divorce. I've said before about how we had lots of friends, went out for each other and then married each other, and until quite recently, we'd all stayed together. But sadly, in the last couple of years, a couple of them have split up now. So it's not a guaranteed thing, you know. It does require work. You've got to keep God at the centre. 
But even then, sometimes things go wrong because, as I said, we are two sinners coming together. There's still the fall going on there. So it's not easy, but I can't really deal with divorce. That needs another whole, whole talk. So well, the full thing is that there is good news. Um, in that passage we just heard, he talks, he uses the Greek word mysterion, a mystery, a secret. Um, not in the sense that, you know, hardly anybody will know it, but in a sense that this is, this is the key to something. And he actually says mega mysterion, great secret. That's, that was translated as a, I think, profound secret or something. Because um, there's this great, wonderful, profound truth that's in there um, that can only be understood with the help of the Holy Spirit. And that's because we're talking in some way about God as Trinity and also about the relationship of God with his church. So Screwtape, if you remember earlier, he said that God wasn't content even in himself to be a sheer arithmetical unity. He claims to be three as well as one in order that this nonsense about love may find a foothold in his own nature. So this is the bigger picture. This is what marriage points to. And it's all through the Bible, within the Trinity, between God the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, between God and his people, and then later on, heaven coming to earth. So these kind of these marriages going on, these marriages of difference coming together. And the love is there because of, because of those, that difference. It's very, it's, it's, it would be a completely different thing if it was talking about the same. Um, and this, this is also, th- those roles that we just heard about are reflected in all those stories as well. Difference, uniting of different roles, headship and submission, of equality and of that agape, serving love. Neil's going to come and give us a second reading from Philippians. Philippians 2, verses 3 to 8. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus allowed himself to be tied to the mast, just like Odysseus tied to that cross so he may have been on the cross and his feelings may have been saying god has abandoned me but he'd decided in advance to love us he'd made a vow to us he'd made a covenant before god and he stayed on that cross for you and for me he died to his own interests and he looked to our needs so that we could be united with god so this is the key to understanding marriage and to living it well Dying to your own interests. Submission, servant leadership, becoming other person-centered. So these distinct roles of the man and the woman within a marriage reveal the power of Jesus. Biblical marriage is a window into the gospel. So this headship is not all about perks and privileges that the woman's giving to the man, not about lording it over the woman. 
It's authority by service. He's to serve. And the submission, there is no anxiety on the wife's part if the husband is playing his role and genuinely serving her. Um, it says your attitude should be the same as Jesus, made nothing, humbled himself. He, Jesus was God, but he submitted still. So if he could choose, choose submission to the Father and also choose servant leadership of us, then we can choose to do similarly within marriage. So now we're able to live properly. We're able to live well. We're able to live and understand what marriage is. We're free to take those roles and we're able to be other person-centered because Jesus first loved us. We can look to Jesus for the things that we might wrongly have looked to a partner for, like the culture's looking to the partner for everything. We can look to Jesus for some of those things now. And then we can live well within marriage. Because um, the good thing is, both parties in the marriage get to play a Jesus role, whether it's submission or whether it's servant leadership. We're both playing that Jesus role and they work together and revolve and you know bond us together so we can love each other we can serve each other we can spur each other on and within our mission and we needn't be distracted by those differences that we have because we can recognize they're a vital part of a God-designed marriage now an obvious question comes up what if you're married to someone who's not a Christian um, I did say I would try and cover that in this uh, talk but they're just unfortunately isn't the time um so i don't want to you know do a half botched job of it so um i've got this which is written by lee strobel whose wife became a christian which he wasn't very happy about um and he's written a guy some thoughts about how to be married to somebody who's not a believer and i think the better thing to do is um it's one of the options for small groups they're at the back with the questions so if your group particularly would like to look at that or if you just want to take one yourself um that's an option for for the small groups um, but i want to take these principles of covenant and difference and unity um, to expand it out to be to, uh, to the church family um, because we've got to be really careful not to pit godly marriage against godly community because community is going to last forever christians are stuck with each other for eternity <laughs> um, and the church is to be the primary source of that community um, for both married people and for single people so it's the place that we learn and we grow and we learn to be disciples um, we do that by sort of living together, working together, and we have all those rough edges knocked off each other. We, you know, discipleship is something uh, that's caught more than taught. You learn by working together, living lives together. And church isn't an orphanage, it is a family, you know. So we've got to fully embrace our church family. Uh, there's only two ways to get into a family. You can either be born into it, or you can be adopted into it. And God does both those things for us. It's called being born again. And it's called being adopted into the family of God. So we're family. We're brothers and we're sisters. Um, and Jesus commands us to love each other. So this is clearly isn't about feeling. You can't command feeling. This is about tying ourselves to the mast, making a decision in advance that we are going to stay together and look after each other. Um, the Bible says uh, in Galatians, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. The word serve, they do loss, means a slave, a bondsman, devoted to one another to the disregard of our own interests. Some people have a bit of an issue that we, we call our church members partners. Well, perhaps we should call each other bondsmen, slaves, because <laughs> that's another picture that's there. Um, but, and, and don't forget, it's the church that's to be the bride of Christ. So when we look at that marriage picture, 
It's the church that's the bride of Christ, not individuals. In the Old Testament, it wasn't Israelites that were going to show God to the world. It was Israel. In the New Testament, it's not individuals. It's the church together. Um, He wants this group of people to come together and to stand out as different to the culture that's around us. In Romans 15, it says, You will all be joined together, and you will give glory to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ accepted you, so you should accept each other, which will bring glory to God. So in this church family, we have different roles, but equal value. We submit to one another. We serve one another. We love one another. We stay together, tie ourselves to the mast. Despite our differences, despite our imperfections, we work it out because we've decided, you know, we're family. We work out those things. And of course, in this family, we have a perfect head in Jesus who submitted and who lived a life of servant leadership. But we've got the final question now. Why should we bother? Why should we go to all this trouble (laughs) of trying to get on with this random bunch of people that we've been put together with? Why should we do it? I think this is the the thing that I really feel God wants to say to us, so try and take this in. Because at the heart of everything that was and is and is to come is a relationship. And the cosmos is built upon and sustained by this relationship. And this relationship is called God. But in the Bible, the Hebrew word for God, which is El, couldn't contain him. It wasn't big enough, it wasn't full enough, it wasn't rich enough. So Moses cries out, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But he doesn't use an easy Hebrew word like yakid or bad, which means a clear numerical one. He uses the word ekad, and that means a unified one. So the word that's used for God mostly in the Old Testament is Elohim, the plural of El, gods, God multiplied. Because what he is, which is one essence, one nature, one united being, is different to who he is. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is in himself a community. So each of those persons is equal, each is divine, yet each is different. And it's that difference that provokes the love, agape love, serving love. All three persons of the unity that is the one true God, are other person-centered. So the Father loves the Son. The Son does nothing of himself but looks to the Father. The Spirit glorifies the Son. And so you've got this amazing um, synergy going on, this perfect synergy, something greater than the sum of the parts. So this isn't God plus God plus God. This is God times God times God. God to the power of three. God cubed. And this throbbing, pulsing, synergetic relationship is swimming in so much love that it can't be contained even within God, even within God cubed. And so it bursts forth and it ignites creation. And this overflow of love 
is poured out on planets and moons and stars, on rocks and earth and rivers and oceans, plants and trees, fish and animals. And then God, to the power of three, says, let us make human beings in our image. And that, so that love is poured out on you and on me, and he makes them male and female, equal but different, made to be in relationship with God. And not only with God, because we can't reflect God's image on our own. We can't do it even as a couple. It's just too small, lacking in vision. We can't settle for that because there's something bigger, there's something better, more glorious, something other. The products of such a loving community as God cubed could never be about one-to-one love. We were made to love each other, to be in relationship with each other, all of us. And so one of these divine persons, Jesus, the Son, the Anointed One, he comes to show us what this relationship called God looks like, to show that marriage and human biological families are a picture, a sign something of this earth. But now, now the kingdom of God is here and we can all be part of it, no matter our circumstances. And after the resurrection in the age to come, which God is preparing us for now and is teaching us how to live in it now, there'll be no marrying, no mere pictures. Instead, we'll have the real thing. We'll be united other-centred, in loving relationship with the rest of the ecclesia, the community of God's people. There'll be complete koinonia, unity of the spirit. And we will have God with his church. We'll be working together in his kingdom and serving each other in love. So all of us who choose to love God and to be loved by God for all of eternity will also be in loving relationship with each other for eternity. And it's that that makes us a suitable bride for the Son of God, the King of kings, Lord of lords, Jesus, our Saviour. So let's not focus on whether we're single, married, parents or children, whether we're employed, unemployed or retired, whether we're rich or poor, sick or healthy. Instead, may we come to know our true identity in Jesus loving and serving one another as brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the King of Kings, princes and princesses, an eternal royal family. And let's live like we believe the eternal community has already begun, because the eternal community has already begun. Amen. Just pause a minute and just let God speak to you. If there's something stood out on that, just let that sink in.